this is where you come to hear tales of loss, redemption, salvation, perspectives, epiphanies, and self-evolution. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the glory in our stories. What up, TGOS listeners? Welcome to the latest episode of The Glory in Our Stories. We're all experiencing setbacks from the spreading of the coronavirus, but that doesn't mean we can't enjoy the solitude while it lasts. If you are on your way out, grab your CDC certified face masks, gloves, and Clorox wipes and wash your hands as often as possible. God still has his hand in this, but it doesn't mean we should avoid cleaning our own. On this episode, we have Dante Stewart, a local pastor, writer and seminarian with much to say about accessing black literature for personal and cultural growth. We will also discuss the inspiration behind his latest article, Black Theology Sings of Freedom. Check it out. Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the latest episode of The Glory in Our Stories. This is your host, Calvin Wayne Pennywell Jr. Uh, Today, I have the privilege of sitting across from a very talented preacher, um, local activist, writer, uh, Mr. Dante Stewart. Man, um, I was captivated. I've been following you for a minute online, especially due to the progression of your family mm-hmm. um, and the development of who you are as a man mm-hmm. and your stance and your belief mm-hmm. in where you are in life. And recently coming across um, this latest article, which we'll get into later, I was just completely captivated and I was like, man, this was, and coming from a fellow writer, I like, this is one of the most well-constructed articles based on an ongoing battle Mm -hmm. that I've ever read. Mm -hmm. The candidness, even the uh, the onset of the article talking about your experience when Mm -hmm. you went running. Mm -hmm. But starting that article off with having that moment with your son, Mm -hmm. I was like, man, Mm. That that was about that was that was a great way to draw the reader in because at that point I was like I wonder where he's taking us from this, mm. um, but uh, Dante I really appreciate you showing up man. Um, it's speaking of your name I always think about Dante's Inferno, mm. and uh, I tried to read the original text, <laughs> and I think I only got to um, maybe the eighth, or seventh circle. Wow. And I, just, I don't think I've ever read it man. <laughs> at all. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's when it's, it's written in this old English. Oh, I can't is, do. No, nope. Yeah. That's just the way I feel about old King James Version. Yeah, man. I can't I just, do it. I, I was like, uh, <laughs> I need something updated, bro. Like this. Yeah. It's just it's throwing me off. But the beautiful aspect of of Dante's journey is that okay. this whole time he's trying to save Beatrice. Wow. But he ends up saving himself. Wow. And in order for him to go up, he has to go down. Wow. And it was like, 
it was beautiful. The uh, the animated film that they made is probably the best illustration of it because mm. with each circle is different mm. type of animation. He goes through different trials. Wow. And he ends up seeing reflections of his past, mm. things that he's done. Mm. And he's like, dang, I was, I was a jerk. <laughs> yeah. Man. Wow. I was a jerk. Um, wow. But um, tell us, tell us a little bit about yourself, about um, where you started, your childhood, yeah. where you yeah. grew up. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you first off uh, for having me on. Yeah, I'm very yeah, no proud problem, of you. Um, it's definitely an honor to uh, take out some time to spend some time with you, uh, uh, whatnot. So, me, I'm raised in South Carolina. I'm the youngest of four. Yeah. I have a sister and two brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom and my father have been married for a very long time. That's what's uh, up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, my dad is a baby of the 50s and my mom is a baby of the 60s. So mm-hmm. what's very interesting, you know, is being able now to, uh, as I mature, to have conversations with them about particularly the way they were raised. Yeah. So that that is uh, one of my joys of just being able to talk to my mom and my dad uh, now kind of in the space that I'm in as I understand more of our history particularly black history Mm -hmm. um, and and the various trials and tribulations that we have faced uh, to be able to have that kind of living narrative that's tangible uh, in the voice and the bodies of our parents so raised in South Carolina very country boy uh, in a small town of St. Matthews where Mike Coulter, who's Luke Cage, is from, and yeah, Alshon yeah, yeah. Jeffrey, who plays for uh, the um, Philadelphia Eagles, uh, who's from there as well. Um, small town uh, where, you know, the best food is at the gas station. You know, you got your, <laughs> your, your livers and your hot sauce, and, and you get your chicken and your fish, wow. uh, and your, potato, your, yeah. your potatoes, uh, and honey mustard, uh, or whatnot. So, um, raised in South Carolina, I ended up going to Clemson University, where I met my wife. I played football there Mm -hmm. um, and did my undergraduate in sociology. I had an incredible time there. My teachers were incredible, very brilliant teachers. Um, And and now what's interesting is post-college, I'm having much more in-depth conversations with them. I mean, they they never would have thought that I would have kind of been in the space that I'm in right now. Yeah. Uh, in the kind of academic and writing world uh, in the ministry world so it's kind of interesting talking race, religion and politics with them mm. um, I would not met my wife like I said there we've been married now for six years and well going on six years will be this year in mm. May and the father of a beautiful energetic vibrant young man named Asa Elijah Stewart affectionately <laughs> uh, so yeah that's pretty much uh, about me and kind of where I'm at in ministry right now on staff at Tabernacle, the local church, Tabernacle Baptist, and mm-hmm. uh, a uh, writer. So, yeah, it's pretty much about so, me. So who's in, who's inspired you as far as the ministry? Like every everybody that does something yeah. uh, professionally, you yeah. always have a go-to or somebody that you admire or you uh, take notes from. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think because life is always kind of in this process of, you know, being cut and polished, uh, you know, and becoming what it is. Uh, we're always kind of in this process of like, you know, where people you resonate with kind of kind of get cut off and you yeah. get polished with somebody different. So for me lately, um, actually, you know, what's interesting, the pastor here locally, uh, Charles, uh, Reverend Dr. Charles Goodman Jr., man, he has been 
man has been a incredible friend, incredible person, very inspiring mm-hmm. um, for me. I resonate deeply with people who are in ministry that's very educated, yeah. but who also know how to you know, navigate the various issues that we're facing in our local communities that's, that's happening in our nation. So I think right now he has been inspiring for me uh, in the ministry side, uh, as well as, you know, I have, I have a few friends that's in ministry as well uh, that have been inspiring to me, whether that is Rich Velotas in New York, uh, Derwin Gray in Charlotte, North Carolina, Fleming Rutledge, who is a brilliant writer um, in New York as well. Beth Moore, uh, she's been uh, very inspiring as a friend. I mean, another people, Jason Cook, who's my best friend, one of my best friends, and Cedric Pierman, who uh, played in the NFL. Uh, he was inspiring for, for me in ministry as well. Yeah. As well as other friends like Leon Crump in Atlanta uh, and just various people. I think, you know, for me, you know, the, the, the journey of inspiration, you know, is not even necessarily simply from people in ministry. Mm-hmm. You know, when I used to work at Bona Cafe, a local coffee shop, and I'm telling you, man, I would be inspired by all the various people I, that I would come in contact with. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking about whether they were people in the business world, whether they were people uh, of various faiths, whether they were people, you know, who uh, cut hair, uh, worked at local markets, uh, just wanted to come in and grab some coffee. I mean, I always found myself being just inspired by, you know, them. And they always taught me something that helped me along the way in ministry. So I would always say, you know, that every, every, every cup tells a story mm-hmm. and every story represents a sermon. Yeah. And so for me, in some sense, everybody that I meet legitimately, I'm always trying to figure out, you know, how can I glean something from their life? That uh, in some sense, I want to listen intently. I want to you know, pay attention, allow them room to speak and to tell their story, yeah. uh, which is pretty much the platform that you're uh, running right now, which is wonderful. I think, you know, you know, we're, we're not deficient in stories as much as we are deficient in creating space for storytellers. Yeah. Uh, and so when we create a space for storytelling, I think many of us will be inspired. So. Yo, thank you all for listening so far. Keep tuning in as we take a break and be right back. Listen, most of us are bummed out because of the call for quarantine due to the virus. This pandemic is affecting our livelihood and ability to stay in close contact with those we love and care about. If we can, let's take this time for some self-assessment. Let's do some spring cleaning mentally, physically, psychologically and spiritually. Let's write in our journals, blogs and diaries. Let's read some books, watch some movies, share some stories and partake of some well-deserved naps. I send my love to you, hoping you find peace in the chaos and now back to the episode i think you know yeah it's, it's it's a lot of people for me whether that's artists and writers like j cole like for real has been yeah. incredibly inspiring for me in ministry uh, for about a few months now and i've been kind of sitting with and, and, and reflecting on his song middle child mm. uh, i mean i listen to that joint like all the time <laughs> uh, and i'm just trying to navigate particularly that second uh, verse of his where he's navigating 
what it means to be a mentor in the rap game, what it means mm. to be, you know, inside of the life of the young dude Kodak, who reminded him of young dudes that he grew up with, uh, but he wished that they had guidance. Yeah. But even in his wish that they had guidance, he still, in some sense, allowed them space to tell their stories. Yeah. Um, and he navigated, you know, trauma and, you know, incarceration and even, you know, family life and mm -hmm. what it means to be constricted uh, to various unwanted uh, uh, particular policies and practices mm -hmm. uh, and to which, you know, you didn't ask for, but that's kind of the soil that you're working in. You have to plant, you know, whatever seeds that you can and pray for a harvest. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I've been kind of resonating with various artists and various writers. So, yeah, it's always, you know, that's always happening of me being inspired. And it's hard to point to one particular person per se, as much as I can follow like a chronology uh, of my journey, whether that be from Martin Luther King to Cornel West to Eddie Glaude to various theologians such as James Cone and J. Dose Robinson and Katie Cannon, Dolores Williams, and just various people uh, who kind of, you know, have helped me in my thinking and my understanding uh, or whatnot, so yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's it's pretty much accurate because for me, as far back as I can remember, the one person that really inspired me. Now his his name, who he is, you know what he is. Everybody knows which is Superman. Wow. But who he is was Christopher Reeve. Mm. And the cool thing about him was that growing up, it's because of Christopher Reeve that I enjoyed Superman. And mm. as a child, I just liked the the aesthetics of it. It's powerful. It's unstoppable. Yeah. He was the kind of guy that can just walk in a room and just demand everybody's presence. Mm. But as I got older and I look back on his journey, I think about a one powerful man that has the ability to probably do whatever he wanted. Mm. But I wonder how many of us pay attention to what he didn't do mm. despite his strength mm. and having the restraint mm. to hold back when you have to. Mm. I think that's, I thought that was more challenging as a mm. man. Mm -hmm. So I started noticing that, mm -hmm. and I was like, I was more in tune with what he kept himself from doing mm -hmm. because he had to look out for people, mm -hmm. and most importantly, look out for his identity. Mm -hmm. And as I got older, started getting into, um, like, <laughs> the only reason why my writing ever evolved mm -hmm. was because of Common, formerly known wow. as Common Sense. Yeah, wow. Man, when I first heard his music, I like, this dude is speaking my language. Mm. He's speaking the way I think. Mm. So I was like, I didn't know anybody did that. Mm. So because of that, I started writing the way I felt, mm -hmm. but writing it the way he did because, of course, you have the, the 16 bar format and Common would, like most, um, like most Def and Talib Kweli, they would take all their words and fit it mm. into the 16 bar um, box. Mm. But everything will fit. It just sounded off because that's people weren't used to that. Yeah. But they were sticking to the rules. Wow. They just made it their own. Yeah. And um, as time moved on, I realized that's what I needed to use. Mm. So going back to what you used, and then I was influenced like like by Dr. Tony Evans when I was mm. in college, mm. and that's one of the people that knows how to take uh, Christian theology yeah. and relate it to uh, pop culture. Yeah. And, and pull you along, you're like, okay, where is he taking us? And yeah. he just brings it back home and brings yeah. it all together. Yeah, that's so, good. Yeah. yeah, that's real, man. I think, you know, you know, some of the best writers and some of the best preachers uh, and thinkers uh, and people, in some sense, you know, are able to give space for our lives to be narrated, mm -hmm. uh, but also, you know, invite us uh, to, in some sense, higher principles, yeah. or higher learning, 
Uh, I read this incredible book late, uh, uh, recently um, called Principal Preaching. Uh, I forgot who it's by. Mm. But he, he, one of the things he brought up was that, you know, most, that most people, you know, in some sense, when they listen to a sermon or when they listen to a speech or when they read, you know, um, something, they are kind of expecting four things. They, they expect the principle to be stated. Mm -hmm. They expect the principle to be explained. They expect the principle to be applied and the principle to be illustrated. Yeah. And so, you know, some of, you know, our best orators or thinkers or intellectuals or writers or preachers, they, they do a great job at that explaining principles, uh, 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 illustrating it and applying it to our lives in ways that's tangible, um, that, that, you know, is kind of geared towards kind of the life space that we're in. Yeah. Um, but also allows a particular type of freedom to make it ours mm -hmm. um, to where it's real and tangible um, and can be kind of, you know, uh, measured yeah. uh, whatnot. Because in some sense, you know, principles that can't be measured are almost are just simply illusionaries and good ideas mm -hmm. uh, uh, whatnot. So, yeah, that's dope. Yeah, I think they're great as well. That's yeah. pretty cool. So, um what drew you to biblical theology over the years? Is this, is this something that you've already mm. always been um, drawn to? Mm. I would say in some sense, yes. I would, I would kind of navigate, you know, the difference between the discipline of, the, the particular discipline of biblical theology that, mm. that, that is kind of found in the academy yeah. um, and the particular practice of biblical theology living wisely theologically yeah. so in some sense like being raised Pentecostal would not be considered in many academic spaces particularly those who are you know particularly white spaces mm -hmm. and or particular evangelical or various spaces you know much of our experience would not fit that mold of being the dis in the discipline, the kind of rigid mm -hmm. discipline of biblical theology. We can see that in, in, in much of uh, the literary canon in the West is that most, uh, you know, black people uh, did not find themselves mm -hmm. in that particular literary canon because they didn't necessarily follow the rules that yeah. were uh, instituted <laughs> whereby one was a judge to be either in or out. Mm -hmm. And so, like, man, being being raised as Pentecostal was incredibly formative for me in my understanding of what it means to live experientially. What does it mean to experience God? What does it mean yeah. to have an awareness uh, and an expectation that God will show up and that God is active yeah. in the world, not simply in the world, but in our communities and in our lives? So my mom and my dad, you know, in the, in the church that I was raised in, you know, they may not be able to give you the grandest arguments that are kind of encapsulated in the various books that people who are academic and intellectually inclined uh, would have written. But, uh, you know, I show I, I, I'm, I'm there for sure uh, living, you know, uh, what does it mean to be someone who is a Christian? What does it mean to be someone who is a bearer of good news mm -hmm. uh, for those who are weighed down uh, in need of liberation and in need of redemption? Yeah. And so for me, I think, you know, being young, it was always formative that like being raised in the church 
in a Pentecostal church was always this kind of experiential learning mm-hmm. um, where, you know, whatever way they could, whether that be in the old King James Version, <laughs> uh, trying to explain Psalms and Proverbs and trying to help us live wisely, you know, what they did was start something for me uh, that was incredibly formative uh, that would have particularly been an integration of the life of the mind mm-hmm. and the lived experience. I recall being a young man and asking myself, how is this going to apply to my life? Because you learn the what when you're young um, and, and, and naive, and later you acquire the why. Um, so I understood that, you know, in reference to what Dante was saying. Um, I think most of us men probably learn these things in a later age, unfortunately, <laughs> but we do learn. Um, but when that bridge is created from what we what we know to how we live, um, it's like an epiphany. So continue to listen to the latest episode of The Glory in Our Stories with Mr. Dante Stewart. And so as I matriculated beyond college and then even in seminary, mm. you know, I was kind of given these kind of rigid rules of what, you know, biblical theology is. Um, and, and in some sense, you know, the categories that I received as a young and, and even beyond, you know, didn't quite necessarily fit that uh, mold. But both were important. I think, you know, the academy is incredibly important for kind of fitting us and shaping us uh, to be who we are. And I think, you know, every aspect of that journey kind of lend itself to help me kind of love, mm. uh, uh, kind of living wisely and theologically speaking. Um, and, and just a pursuit of, you know, like knowing and experiencing, uh, thinking and reflecting, living and doing. And so I guess at every phase of my matriculation as a thinker, whether that be in my Pentecostal church or whether that be at Clemson University or whether that be when I was in California or even here and now and even in my own personal studies, um, all of it was formative for what I understand to be, you know, what does it mean to live biblical and what it means to be uh, theological in our wrestling and our thinking and our living. So yeah, it sounds like the appearance set that foundation for you. Oh yeah, oh yeah. cuz dog. <laughs> yes, yes. My mom to this day, bruh, is uh, an avid biblical quoter when I talk to her. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy because like we have conversations, bruh, and it's like she talk Bible, she talking King James or whatnot. I'm like, mom, like we are not living in the 1500s. <laughs> Uh, uh, or whatnot. I mean, it was funny because we used to have this thing called testimony service, mm-hmm. and back in, and that's a time in church where they were just open, where people can, like this podcast, open up and tell their stories. Yeah. And I would never forget there was this one sister who would always start with a quote of the of of, of the Bible. And I mean, I really fell in love with the King James. Uh, version of the Bible of the thinketh and the doeth. As a man thinketh, so is he. Or, you know, I will bless the Lord at all time and his praise shall continue to be in my mouth. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, that just that, that, you know, that freedom mm-hmm. to, you know, wrestle, that freedom to make that biblical story ours, mm-hmm. our story, and our story, the biblical story. I'll never forget uh, reading a uh, book by. Uh, Dr. Willie James Jennings, who's a professor of theology out of Yale Divinity School, and he wrote this book entitled The Christian Imagination, Theology and the Origins of Race, and he tells this fascinating story mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning of his book of his mother and being raised in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Mm-hmm. So his mother was one of the local 
uh, leaders in her black church and these missionaries, these local missionaries came by and uh, they tried to evangelize his mother. And so he wondered, he was like, you know, my mom is already Christian. Why don't they know her? Mm. And he asked this question, if they are Christian, why don't they know her? They didn't, in some sense, they didn't care to know her. They didn't, they, they didn't have a framework for knowing one who is not white and or conservative and or evangelical. So yeah. that framework didn't account for her reality. But he said, you know, that he remembers his mother in the garden that as she would be in the garden, they would always narrate these stories of Bible. And he would say, he said something very fascinating. He said like the Bible stories and the characters of the Bible almost was like as if they were people sitting around the dinner table. That like Moses and Elijah and Deborah and Esther were one of us. Yeah. And I thought that was fascinating. Just like the way I was raised, you know, they, they set that foundation uh, that uh, we read of in scripture, you know, that, that, you know, this is in some sense very much our story. I mean, this is, you know, the people in the ancient Near East are not as foreign as we think they are. They're not strangers. Yeah. Uh, they are actually friends and acquaintances uh, that we have much to learn from. Hmm. Yeah. Now, how does this uh, translate into your experience as a black man? Like my mom, it wasn't mm -hmm. until maybe about 10 Maybe 10 years ago, my mom was, we were just talking like we always do. And my mom is one of those ones that wake up in the morning and you find them on their knees. And they, yeah. they have their, their yeah. devotion time. And you yeah. knew when you saw them, yeah. you don't mess with them. No matter what you need, oh, yeah. just leave yeah. them alone. Yeah, you, you close that door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, but mom reminded me, she said, you know, one day, son, you are going to be a husband. Mm -hmm. And Lord willing, you'll be a father as well. But you have mm -hmm. to remember that you are, you will be a black husband. You would be a black father. Mm -hmm. And um, at this time, even growing up, she, like my sisters, when they had Barbie dolls, even mm -hmm. Cabbage Patch kids, mm -hmm. she took it upon herself to get the, the black ones, to make mm -hmm. you know that there is a difference yeah. and that you are represented mm -hmm. and within this aspect as well. Mm -hmm. But it didn't click mm -hmm. with me until mom said that. Because mm -hmm. I'm thinking, I'm just, I'm just me. Mm -hmm. But we grew up in a predominantly white wow. congregation. Wow. And I was totally oblivious yes. to maybe the differences that they mm -hmm. probably noticed, but I didn't. Yes. And even to this day, they said, CJ, back then you had virgin eyes. Yes. Because I, I was it. just, I was just so focused on, oh, this is church. This is the way it's supposed to be. Yes. Um, but the process of, and this will even spill into the second question: What challenges do you think black men face in 2020, not just in general, but mm -hmm. with yourself? Mm -hmm. I'll go to the first question that you asked about, you know, how does this inform my experience as a black man and yeah. a Christian and kind of how do we integrate that together? And then I'll kind of lean into um, the second question of the challenges that black males face. I think, you know, one of the challenges, and this is particularly one of the challenges that I find in the academic circles mm -hmm. is that much, like I said earlier, the literary canon doesn't necessarily take seriously our experience yeah. uh, not simply as black males but collectively as black people yeah. uh, now I think one of the dangers that we that we face particularly as black males is that you know we then become the narrative center of the black lived experience mm. now this is a big challenge for us particularly 
as black men, we as black men, we have in some sense, even in the history of oppression, have embodied the kind of narrative center whereby which all black people are judged against. Now we can see this within the civil rights movement in some sense, or even, you know, even some of our beloved, you know, thinkers, whether that be uh, Martin Luther King or, you know, Malcolm X or even W.E. Du Bois, um, many of them, if we read, if we pay kind of close attention to uh, their choice of words, uh, much of it is like the black man or uh, the black male or mm-hmm. he and him and his. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, first off, that does present a particular limitations for us as we try to narrate our lives as black and male and Christian. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I think leaning into that limitation mm-hmm. has been helpful. Uh, so growing up Pentecostal, um, we are not necessarily immune to societal patriarchy uh, where maleness dominates that which is beautiful, that which is good, that which is lovely, that which should be. Mm -hmm. And so I think even being raised Pentecostal and realizing, you know, the kind of uneasiness of how women have been treated uh, how their lives have been narrated up against the black male within Christian spaces yeah. um, should be taken into account. And that's one of the things, you know, for me has been formative these last few years as a black Christian has been, you know, kind of reading our stuff. And I think that's that, you know, that for and when I say reading our stuff, I mean, not simply understanding black history, but particularly understanding black intellectual history and intellectual engagement with the world. So many of our young people can, you know, name a Martin Luther King or many of our young people can name a Malcolm X. And that's great. And that's good. But how many of them have, you know, in creative ways, in ways that's clear, compelling, and creative, have been informed by their intellectual engagement with the world? Yeah. Uh, and or have they simply read black males, not black women, like Toni Morrison mm-hmm. or Bell Hooks, which is, mm-hmm. I'm going to come back to Bell Hooks and a few and kind of how she's been kind of formative for my understanding of my, how I think about myself as a black male and Christian. Yeah. But I think, you know, reading our intellectual engagement with the world, whether that be our philosophical engagement with the world, whether that be our spiritual and theological engagement with the world, or whether that be our political engagement with the world, you know, I think, you know, these various spheres of human life, you know, all are needed in order to shape and form who we are. So... I did my undergraduate in sociology, and one of the things um, that a really good sociologist, C. Wright Mills, uh, would would kind of press us into is to realize, you know, that there is no such thing in some sense as just an individual, but, you know, the individual and the collective work hand in hand, and they're integrated with one another. Yeah. Uh, and so as we kind of try and narrate our lives you know, we need not simply the kind of individual experience of, you know, the black Christian or mm-hmm. even simply being black. Yeah. 
Yeah. I need to try and figure out a way how to integrate what does it mean to be black anthropologically uh, as it relates to kind of our human experience and how we narrate the world. What does it mean to be black socially? Yeah. Uh, what does it mean to be black uh, theologically um, or politically or philosophically? So I need all these things to help me kind of navigate that. For me, one of the huge ways I've navigated that is, you know, as someone in seminary, as someone doing theological work and theological writing, mm -hmm. has been particularly reading our engagement with theology. So in the 60s, um, many of, in the 50s and 60s, and particularly in the 70s is, mm -hmm. is when it really hit off, uh, where black people in the academy, particularly uh, James Cone and J.D. Otis Roberts, um, in, in the kind of theological world, they kind of said, you know, enough was enough uh, in the white academies. Yeah. That like their professors were white and even though they were integrated, their bodies were integrated into uh, the white academy and assimilated in their particular educational enterprise, the white academy did not necessarily integrate the scars of the black body mm. and the brilliance of the black mind. Yeah. And so if we just get bodies without scars and brilliance, then we simply got a token. We simply got a marketable product that looks good and, and, and may bring in particular funding, may bring us a particular like social status in this world, um, but it won't necessarily do real good for real people who are trying to uh, uh, work in a real world. Yeah. And so through the writings of, you know, like James Cone and J.D. Otis Roberts, you know, that helped me because you know, reading someone who had the questions that I was asking as a black person, particularly in like a post Trayvon Martin world, post yeah. Michael Brown world, a post Black Lives Matter, a, a, even a post Trump world where we are faced with various uh, 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 particular issues and troubles that we have to deal with and we need answers to. And I found, you know, that much of you know, my white brothers and sisters kind of narration of theology, narration of God and the gospel mm -hmm. and what would even be considered black the, uh, the biblical theology didn't necessarily make room for we as black people to take control of our experience and to narrate a world that we can imagine as better with black life in it. Yeah. So in order for us, as some say, you know, to become our ancestor wildest dreams, we must be able to take on our ancestors pen. Mm. We must be able to write continually their story. We must take up their books to learn their world. Because if not, you know, in some sense, we will be almost like the Wizard of Oz. It's almost like, you know, we'll be transported into Oz, but still living with the Kansas mind. Yeah. And those two worlds are totally different. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, those two those yeah. two worlds are totally different. Totally. Yeah. Totally different. The terrain, the way human life takes form, mm -hmm. uh, the way that commerce and politics take form. Uh, because in some sense, Dorothy was living in I think the story was written in like the twenties or thirties. You know, Dorothy is living in a world that was uh, in the 20s and 30s, you know, in some sense, Tulsa, Oklahoma, it happened in the 20s. It was a post kind of, you know, Jim, in the midst of Jim Crow, post-Civil War America trying to uh, 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 reconstruct itself. 
Yeah. And so Dorothy is living in this world and she's transported into Oz and now the world of Kansas and Oz, you know, take two totally different things in order to live in those worlds. Mm. And so for me, reading black theology was the nexus of my kind of coming to being as a thinker mm. uh, and a writer and a preacher and someone who's an inspiring pastor and even you know as a husband and as a father to be able to be given the word that your black life matters you know and that as black christians you have a responsibility not simply the gift yeah. but you have a responsibility to keep this going because if you don't like our stories will die. Mm. If, if you don't take up that pen, no one else will. Nobody cares to. Yeah. Because in some sense, being black in America and living the world that we have, living in the world that we have been given, you know, means that we automatically are born into trauma. Mm. We're born into a traumatized story. And we have to, in some sense, you know, be able to narrow away our scars. Yeah. And if you're not a part of that people group, it's very hard to care enough about the scars of another to be able to be empathetic enough to see that the struggle for liberation is ongoing. Hmm. Because the struggle to heal is an everyday process. Yeah. And so, for me, you know, we have to narrate that like struggle continually as being black Christian situated in an America that's still very much racist yeah. an America that still has policies and practices that continually scream at us that there is what Eddie Glaude from Princeton calls the value gap mm. that black lives are valued less than other people's lives particularly white lives, whether you're talking about education, whether you're talking about incarceration, whether you're talking about housing, whether you're talking about uh, who gets loans and who don't, whether you're talking about curriculum and stuff like that, and even discipline and punishment, how our children are treated. Black people in very much ways are still considered dangerous and therefore criminalized in need of subjection. Hmm. And so for us, the task for us as black Christian males in America is always trying to narrate our black story in the historic Christian faith, in the society that we're living in. Mm -hmm. And so we can't simply narrate being black and we can't simply narrate being Christian and we can't simply narrate being in America, but we must find a way to integrate all three of those realities in order that we may live whole uh, and in a way that's, you know, a life worth living, uh, that which Jesus calls the kingdom of God mm. um, or whatnot. And so to lean in kind of the second question about the challenges that we face back to Bill Hooks. You know, I read this great book too. I would recommend to everybody to read by Bill Hooks. It's called We Real Cool, Black Men and Black Masculinity. Mm. And one of the challenges that Bill, Bill Hooks said that many black males face is that they're trying to be black and male within a white supremacist capitalist patriarchal society i think i said that right she uses like all three of those words yeah, yeah, yeah. which in some sense 
you know, beckon some explanation uh, that the white supremacist means that, you know, what Eddie Gar says, that white people's lives are valued more and therefore becomes the standard by which, you know, uh, black life is measured, a capitalist world in which the black body and the black mind becomes a commodity mm -hmm. whereby exploitation becomes uh, uh, the narrative and patriarchal where maleness becomes the center narrative of what it means to be human. Yeah. And so we have these kind of three challenges that we're facing inside of world, inside of a world that still narrates black male bodies as dangerous. I recently went Facebook Live and did a poetry writing exercise where I used the three stanza format to answer three questions. Each quatrain, which is a four-line stanza, was used to answer each question individually. The questions were, what is it that you want in life? What are you doing to get it? And if what you're doing isn't working, what are you doing to change that? If you're interested in trying to exercise, do so and see what you come up with or simply ask yourself these questions. We only have one life to live, so why not make the best of it? Be safe and enjoy your day. And so she, she brings up this one line that made me, literally made me cry mm. uh, when I read this one line because so many black males don't hear this. She simply stated, wounded black men can heal. Mm. Wounded black men can heal. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we as young and old black men are facing is that we don't have a space to heal. We don't have a space to be free. We don't have a space in some sense where our various trauma, whether it be a trauma that has been imposed upon us or the trauma that we have caused, we, we don't have a way in some sense of narrating that ongoing struggle. And so Bell Hooks, invites us to reimagine what it means to be male and she captures she 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 captures it in this kind of metaphor of healer mm. and i think you know healing and nurturing has not necessarily been how we thought about our black maleness yeah got that right it's not yeah. a healing humanity or a nurturing humanity yeah and so for us the challenge is like J. Cole in his uh, joint in his joint middle child, you know, he says that, you know, we come from a long bloodline of trauma. We raised by our mama's Lord. We got to heal. Mm. And so we need to have spaces where we can narrate those stories of trauma. Yeah. but also push one another into healing. Where he says earlier, you know, I just left uh, the, the lab, just left the lab with the young dude Kodak. He reminded me of young dudes from the Ville. No faking, just honest. I wish they had more guidance for real. Mm. And so he's narrating his life, but also pushing into this kind of taking up the mantle to guide, you know, and oftentimes... The reason young black males are struggling is because black men, particularly young black men, we're blamed for the situation that we did not ask for. Yeah. Oftentimes, you know, in our in the kind of societal narrative of criminalization, um, we are blamed for 
our positions that we find ourselves in. And this is reinforced by black men. I can't tell you the amount of black coaches I've had that in some sense told us black males that in order for us to make it in life, it depended solely on our decisions. Hmm. And that the reason why we are where we are and the way we are is because of our decisions. And we understand that nobody is simply their decisions. There's always a social location and narrative and naming that has influenced how we think about ourselves, Mm -hmm. our lives, others, and how we relate to our neighbors. And so in that kind of narrative, Bell Hooks would tell us that, you know, many people in some sense are pushing black males down uh, more than they're raising them up. And whenever there's a black male that kind of falls out of that mold Mm. of, you know, the strong black male or the kind of non-emotional black male that Mm -hmm. does not feel the kind of non-verbal black male uh, that does not verbalize the non-truthful black male that's not honest about uh, their trauma. Bell Hooks says oftentimes when some when a black male gets out of sight of that narrative, usually people kind of punish them uh, because they're actually free. And so I think, you know, one of the challenges is that we as black males have to, I think, there, there are many challenges, mm-hmm. but I think we have to read, I would say, black women hmm. to understand and reimagine our maleness. Because what Bell Hooks did for me uh, is she helped me in some sense, you know, narrate my life, my life from the black woman's eyes. So usually when black men narrate black male lives, we don't realize the limitations that we have. We all have limitations because of our social location and our yeah. social narrative. Mm-hmm. And so we should always be inviting people to kind of narrate those limitations for us. That's not to say that they're always right, but we won't be able to mature and grow if simply the same person, same social narrative is narrating our life over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, and so I think Bell Hooks, what she does for us um, is even what's interesting is I don't even know if Bill, I don't think she's even religious per se, but she used so much of this kind of religious Christian language to narrate black male lives, this language of loving, this language of solidarity, this Mm -hmm. language of helping and healing and nurturing, this language of salvation um, uh, or whatnot. There was one thing that... um, Bell Hook said, you know, that really blessed me when I read her book. She, she was talking about uh, black maleness and, and being healers. She says that, you know, these visions of black men as healers, which she says, you know, that the black male and our wounded hearts will be able, when we become healers, we'll be able to take the broken bits and pieces that I am and give them back to me in the right order. 
And so we should take the broken pieces that we are and give them back to ourselves in right order. And that's going to take all of us. And so she says these visions of black males as healers able to nurture life are the representations of black masculinity that keep it real. For they offer the vision of what is possible, a hint of the spirit that is alive and well in the black male collective being ready to be reborn. They take our minds and hearts away from the images of black males who have known soul murder and speak to us of resurrection, of a world in the making where all is well with black men's soul, where they are free and made whole. And so she uses this theological language of resurrection hmm. to narrate black male lives. And I, I agree wholeheartedly that black male lives need a resurrection. And I think, you know, part of that resurrection is religious. I think part of that resurrection is emotional. Mm. Uh, part of that resurrection is mental. Part of that resurrection is philosophical. Part of that resurrection is relational. It's wholeness. And that's very Christian. You know, when Jesus came onto the scene uh, preaching what would be considered the good news, mm -hmm. the good news was this kind of Jewish language of shalom, yeah. which, what, which meant peace and wholeness to that which has been broken. Hmm. And so we should be doing all that we can, especially as Christians, to try to learn as much as we can so that we may become healers and nurturers of black men who have only known soul murder, murdering pieces of themselves that is hard to deal with, yeah. who have only known soul murder that make us cold to black women, that make us cold to other people, that make us cold even to our own brothers, hmm. and re-narrate ourselves as those who would be whole where we walk in an integration of our minds, our bodies, our spirits, our hands, our hearts, uh, and our feet, where we go into their spaces, not as people who are hurt, but people who are healed and whole. So I think that's one of the big challenges. Hello, Tigas listeners. If you haven't heard already, my chat book titled Resignation is out for order. Just go to lulu.com, an online publishing company, type in Calvin Pennywell Jr., and there it is. This chapbook consists of literary illustrations of my journey through manhood over the last decade. The book launch took place on February 22nd at Eubora Coffee in downtown Augusta. So go check out this local cafe for some solid coffee brewing. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram for details concerning future events. Be inspired and be helpful to others. Spread love not germs be safe that was um thank you that was long-winded so no no but that was that was needed though yeah well needed um spilling over into and this will be our my last question Wonderful. um but it's funny you, just to go back and what you were saying the first person i thought about i thought about in reference to broken pieces as a black man mm -hmm. that unfortunately didn't become salvageable Mm. was Khalif Browder mm. and I was like man like that really hurt mm. that really when I because mm. I saw the documentary and I read about it and I that was a point when he was released mm. and then he was on um, television talking mm. about his process and it's mm. automatically easy for us to think oh he's fine and mm. then time passes and it's like he gets stuck in a box that 
it's like no one helps him out of mm. and within that box mm. comes his demise mm. and I was like if that's not the worst the best worst example mm. of the downfall of mm. that what is it going to take mm. and sadly if I hope that something like that woke people up and even mm. being reintroduced to the Central Park Five, their mm, whole situation, yes, yes. and realizing that all yes. of them are still alive. Yes, exactly, exactly. All of them are still alive. Yes. So, um, but yeah, um, I'm gonna go ahead and ask you this. Yes, that's good. So, what inspired you to write "Black Theology Sings of Freedom"? Wow. Uh, before he starts, yo, if you have not read this, this is one of this the best articles I've ever come across. It is so enriched with the overall theme and if you you just have to read it because i read it i read it at work yeah and i'm sitting at my desk and i'm like as a writer like yeah. the other part of me was like man i wish i wrote that <laughs> <laughs> oh you can't my brother you man, can't that yeah. was beautiful yeah. uh so so what inspired you to write it yeah i felt you know i've been writing now for three years and you know one of the things i started to realize is that you know as writers um we don't have many, in the, in the theological world per se, um, we don't have many writers who are working necessarily from, I wanna, I wanna be careful how, how I say this, um, there are many, but in, in, in kind of the whole kind of enterprise, mm -hmm. we don't have many writers that are working from the narrative of black theology. Mm -hmm. um, as a discipline, as an academic discipline, or as a lived experience. Yeah. So acad uh, black theology came on scene, you know, as an academic discipline in the 60s and the 70s, which uh, one of the core tenets of, you know, black theology is that the black person uh, can and should narrate Christian theology. Mm -hmm. They can and should narrate what the meaning of Jesus and the church and history and God and the Bible is as it relates to the black experience. And yeah. so these thinkers and theologians were narrating this black story, but you know, black theology was always happening. Mm -hmm. uh, black theology was happening in slave quarters uh, when black people gathered together in hush harbors uh, that would say, you know, you may not, you may have enslaved my body, but you can't enslave my mind. I mean, yeah. black theology was happening uh, during Reconstruction when they said, you know, that black people aren't just simply glad to be reg relegated uh, to this kind of social freedom, but we want political liberation and freedom. Mm -hmm. uh, black theology was present, you know, in, the, in, in Jim Crow that says, you know, we're going to fight against lynching and that black, that, that Jesus narrated uh, as this kind of symbol of blackness, the black Jesus identified with the black oppressed people and that the mm -hmm. cross and the lynching tree uh, can be narrated together. Yeah. That just as Jesus was uh, 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 was executed under uh, Roman rule as a poor oppressed Jew, so black people are uh, are, are oppressed uh, and executed under American empire and rule, mm -hmm. and therefore we need to narrate uh, political, social, economic, cultural, as well as spiritual freedom in black life. And so for me, I felt you know that. I wanted to kind of carry that on yeah. as a writer. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there was something, you know, enlivening about reading Cone's work, The Cross and the Lynch Tree, which many people, if you haven't read that book by James Cone, read The Cross and the Lynch Tree by James Cone, uh, who was a brilliant scholar uh, out of Union Theological Seminary. Uh, read uh, another brilliant book by another black theologian, J.D. Otis Roberts, Liberation and Reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And when they were doing this kind of academic work, you know, they were narrating theological questions out of the existential realities of black people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were dealing with what does God have to say to the black person in America, right here, right now. Yeah. And so for me, that became the inspiration is that I read those books as well as, you know, reading My Angelou's The Cage Bird Sings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the cage bird, you know, even though his feet is tied and his wings are clipped, he tightens up and straightens up his throat and he still sings. Mm-hmm. And so what does it mean for black people in America in 2020 and beyond and even before to have our wings at clipped? and our feet tied, but still seeing a freedom. Mm. So that for me became like a big inspiration is Mm. that like the cage bird must still sing. Even though the cage bird is bound, we have to ask the question, how does one keep flying and keep singing in a world in which one is bound? Like uh, Imani Perry, Uh, who wrote a beautiful book called Breathe, A Letter to My Sons, which is another excellent book. She says, how do you become in a world built on your not becoming? (laughs) That's very Christian. How does one say that I am somebody created in the image of God when everything in the world tells me that I am not? And so that became the nexus of my thought Mm -hmm. and the inspiration for me was I wanted to write black theology mm-hmm. in such a way that's poetic yeah. and great writing. I take writing very seriously. Yeah. When I write, I want it to be really good. So I spend a lot of time on writing. <laughs> My <laughs> I'm wife glad would you tell did, you, man. I'm thank you, you thank you. My wife would tell you, like I'm, I'm like really like, she probably is so aggravated with me how much I like, babe, how does this sound? Um, does that sound good? Because my wife, she, she's, my wife is very intellectually astute, but like the conversations that I'm having in my head, she's just not having. Yeah. And so I need to be able to communicate the conversations that I'm having in my head with people who are not in that space to invite them into a space, you know, that I'm trying to get all of us to like reflect in. Mm-hmm. So my writing don't necessarily answer the question, what should black people do today? Yeah. That, that's not my goal. My goal is to kind of narrate our story and you come up with your answers. Mm. Why is Odysseus so important? The Odyssey from Homer. Why is it so important? It's because, you know, he wrote it and we read it and we kind of interpret that story for ourselves. Why is Beloved by Toni Morrison so powerful? Because when Baby Suggs preaches a freedom, of that fleshing freedom, we're able to we're able to look at that and say, if Baby Suggs can be free, I can be too. Mm. What that's what makes the story, the Christian story, so powerful. 
is that the Christian story is powerful because it shows us a God who refuses to leave us alone. Hmm. A God who refuses to have to let evil have the last say. A God who refuses to let the brokenhearted, the oppressed, the lonely not have a savior who identifies with them and bring them victory even in the midst of defeat and struggle. Hmm. A God who has the capacity to hold in one hand the darkness of Friday the silence of Saturday, but to meet the disciples on the road to Emmaus and tell them that Sunday is here, mm. but then leave <laughs> and send them to Monday with a new hope that we got to go back to Jerusalem. Yeah. If people haven't heard that story, read in Luke, I think 22 or 24, the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus who their savior, their hope, was brutally crucified. And they left that place, lonely as many of us are, wondering, is God still the winner? Does God still care? Does God have the capacity to bring victory, even in the midst of darkness? Does God love, even in the midst of struggle? Does God identify even in the midst of oppression. And so when Jesus meets them on that lonely road to Emmaus, he lets them know there's another way. Hmm. And that way is freedom. And so for me, that article, that essay, was in some sense allowing people to see that they are the bird. Yeah. And they must still sing. <laughs> Man, I was uh, you just reminded me of a quote from Pastor uh, Stephen Furtick in, um, in Charlotte, North Carolina. He said in a, in a, uh, in a sermon, if you can't see your value, mm. it's very difficult to praise a God who thought you were valuable enough mm. to die for. Mm. And in that sense... If you can't see how precious mm. you are, yes, then it will be difficult for you to open mm. your your mouth in yes. praise, yes, and to be reminded the greatest love story ever told. Oh, and yes. I guess it's so beautiful because even in in biblical texts, when he said, "For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son," mm. if he flipped that around, mm. "For God so loved his Son." Mm. And but he literally put mm. us first mm. in the verse. Mm. That's beautiful. And I'm like, wow. So yeah. in this sense, you created your, your your the death of your son was for us. Yes. Like you said, like I love you too much. Yes. I love you too much to let you go. Yes. And us people, it's so easy to yes. just let go. Yes. To get divorces. Yes. To disown you as a family member. Yes. And to leave you in the darkness. Yes. It's so easy for us to do that. Yes. But he was the great example of say and to be and to be God's son and to be man, as if to say, You can do this too. Mm. Not only that, you will go on to do greater things. Mm. So That's beautiful. To 
I just want to personally thank you, mm. not just as a writer, mm. but as a fellow black man, yes. writing this in the mm. way that you did. Mm. Like it was, it was so beautifully illustrated, mm. perfectly said, mm. and I can tell that you actually took your time. Like once you put mm. something out there, because when it comes to writing, as we know, our writing pieces are like our babies. Oh yes, and we oh, raise yes. them, and yeah. we, we we feed them, yes. and we bathe them, and say, you know mm. what, I have to, I have to let them go. Mm. And at that point, when you posted it mm. like it's it's solid it's mm. mandated right now mm. and it, I, I was like wow wow so even before the interview and I ended mm. with this I thought I wonder if he's going to extend this into something more and then you mentioned yeah what you said before yeah yeah so so yeah yeah I do I do plan on uh extending it uh hopefully I can turn it into a book proposal I, I do plan on doing that uh in uh the not so distant future so actually, I uh, wrote a devotional. Um, I had to take it off my website because it actually is it's going to get published, so I had to take it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I wrote a devotional over uh, the Christmas holidays. Uh, that kind of did what we talked about. I, I wrote a 25-day devotional for Advent, um, which is in the church calendar, the time you know, where we prepare our heart for the coming of the Lord and the coming victory of the resurrection. Uh, and I wrote a Advent devotional, particularly uh, using primary sources of black voices, intellectual mm-hmm. engagement. So, I mean, I'm, I'm using anybody from black poets to hip hop artists to philosophers to theologians to mm-hmm. uh, literary giants like James Baldwin and Toni Morrison yeah. uh, to fiction writers like uh, uh, Richard Wright uh, to uh thinkers like Langston Hughes, uh, uh, whatnot, even, you know, what I would believe to be, you know, some of our most brilliant poets like Tupac mm. uh, uh, and J. Cole. So, yeah, I uh, wrote that. And, and so I'm kind of on a journey right now to kind of, you know, in some sense, recapture that theological engagement with the world from the black lived experience. Yeah. Uh, and I, I have kind of received that as a writer, that that's kind of my journey as a writer is to, you know, narrate our story in ways that's clear, uh, compelling uh, and consistent, um, that is poetic and prophetic, uh, that's living and uh, liberating uh, for us, but that also, you know, uh, stays true to what it means for me to be a Christian. So, um yeah, yeah, definitely plan on turning this article, this essay, uh, into a book proposal, and hopefully we'll be writing uh, more and more in the future, and we'll become a better writer more and more. And really, you know, one of the things I want to do, uh, so if anybody's interested, reach out to me on Twitter, Unshameless Plug, Shameless Plug, uh, reach out to me on Twitter or Facebook or, so, or IG. Uh, one of the things I really want to do, you know, is train black writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really want to connect with people and train black writers and, you know, we got the various platform spaces, uh, but like Cole say, you know, I'm not going to use the word he says, but he know he says in military he says, "What good is a meal if my dudes ain't rich? What good is first class if my dudes can't sit?" Mm. And so for me, that's one of my big goals as a writer, is to you know, if you get me, you get all of us, yeah, uh, or whatnot. So hopefully, you know, as I kind of step into that official publishing world, mm-hmm. that I could bring a lot of people with me. That's what's up. Yeah. 
for those of you who are listening, uh, this is the latest episode of The Glory in Our Stories uh, with Mr. Dante Stewart. Yo, thank you for listening. Tune in next time for the latest episode of The Glory in Our Stories.